I feel like I've lived nine lives. <laughs> it does not sound like you have had nine past lives. It sounds like you are currently living nine lives. <laughs> Maybe a little bit. <laughs> Welcome to Obstacles and Opportunities with Lowell and Julie. Sharing stories, empowering mindsets. Four-time Paralympian Jessica Twamala is here. Jessica started out as a swimmer and most recently competed in triathlon at the Tokyo 2020 Paralympic Games. Jessica, who lost her sight by the age of three as a result of retinoblastoma, tells us about overcoming her fear of deep water, how she got into competitive swimming, and the transition to triathlon. Sport is just a small part of Jessica's story, though. It seems as though she's lived 17 lives. She has incredible stories to share and an amazing sense of humor. We loved every second of our time with this Spitfire, and we hope you do too. Good morning. We are really excited to have you here on Obstacles and Opportunities to talk about your life, your exciting summer, and the story that brought you here. Oh yeah, man, Jessica, I was reading a little bit about you, and Lowell asked me if I had an idea of what kind of questions I wanted to ask you, and I was like, Lowell, she is so cool. Like, we just need to talk to her. She has <laughs> such a cool story. Like, I can't wait to talk to her. So, so here you are, and we're pumped to chat. Here I am. <laughs> yes. Thank you for having me. I'm really glad to be here. <laughs> We're thrilled as well. And you're chatting with us from BC? Yes, I'm in Victoria. Ah, nice. To start out, I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about how you acquired your visual impairment. Okay, so I was diagnosed between a year and a half and two years old with retinoblastoma, which is cancer in the retinas. Don't really know where it came from. It sort of just popped up. They rushed me to SickKids Hospital in Toronto, removed the left eye right away in the hopes of being able to save the right eye. Unfortunately, I guess it wasn't fast enough and the cancer did spread through the optic nerve to the right eye. So then my parents opted for treatment, radiation and chemotherapy, but then that didn't work either. And so it was time to remove the second eye. And so I lost that one by the time I was about three. Oh, wow. Do you remember at all having sight? I think I used to. Like, I think when I was really small, I had visual memories. And at the time, they were kind of confusing. I think I still have visual memories, but they are probably not accurate at all because it's been so long. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, they often say that the hippocampus, the part of the memory center that stores memories, it doesn't really write them down until about that age three yeah, I was really lucky and Make-A-Wish Foundation sent my parents and I to Disney when I uh -huh. still had sight in the right eye. And it's funny because I had these memories of these strange things doing things. And then I realized later that it was memories from Disney. So like I had memories of Minnie Mouse exercising <laughs> on a stage and like... <laughs> And, and I just, I couldn't understand what that was until I was older and my parents were telling stories and I was like, oh, that was me remembering things from Disney. So, but I'm wow. sure like my memory of what Minnie Mouse looks like now is definitely not what Minnie Mouse looks like. Well, you know, M Minnie Mouse, they just kind of redid her cartoon with a pantsuit. So she's got pants. So yeah. I really don't know what she looks like <laughs> yeah. anymore. It's no longer the polka dotted dress or <laughs> the classic. No. That's crazy. Do you think that you, like when people talk about the colors and stuff that are out there, can you visualize in your head what, what that is since you had exposure to it really young? Yeah. I would have been a little bit young to yeah. have a full repertoire of colors, but it's kind of funny because now even as an adult, like I want to know what color things are. And if I mm -hmm. buy things, 
nine times out of 10, I will not buy black. I will not buy black or gray or white. Like I want things to be colorful. Uh, I love that. <laughs> yeah. Like your personality. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess so. So what are some of your earliest memories? Let's kind of go through childhood and see kind of the, the ups and the downs, the bumpy life of a girl with no vision, but sounds like she was loved. So what was childhood like for Jessica? Oh, yes. Very loved. So I grew up as an only child, but I had a lot of cousins around my age, which I think was a good thing. In order to be able to play with them, we just had to adapt. And so my cousins were great and they adapted. And also, I don't know if I wanted to play with them. I just had to do whatever they were doing. <laughs> so mm. We lived up in Northern Ontario. And so there wasn't really a lot of resources available. And so we just kind of made things work with what we had summers were spent camping, like tent camping in the middle of nowhere. Um, (laughs) We would go swimming in the lakes. Funnily enough, I was terrified of water, like deep water. And I failed swimming lessons like three times. Oh, wow. I didn't learn how to swim until I was 12. (laughs) Wow. Um, But swimming in the lakes was like part of growing up. And I think like, I loved it. I was just terrified of deep water. So I always wore a life jacket. Mm -hmm. Do you know why you were terrified of deep water? Or no, no, I don't know. I was just like, it was very strange. I was just like, no, no, thanks. Yeah, (laughs) I think so. (laughs) But like, I had no problem climbing trees and people are like, can you come down from there? Some level you may have been reading also off of other people's anxieties because many people are afraid of deep water and you couldn't necessarily see that it was deep or not, but maybe it was the family saying, this is deep, be careful. Yeah, it could be for sure. Although they're like, that tree is high, be careful. And that didn't stop her. (laughs) Uh, No. (laughs) I still have a thing with oceans. So like now when I have to race in oceans, I'm like, whoa, I don't know about this. There's like sharks and things in here, aren't there? (laughs) I think it's healthy to have a bit of fear about the ocean. That's uh, yeah. there, things live there that are <laughs> exactly. kind of scary. Yeah. A conversation that often happens around visually impaired, especially children who have no sight at all, is this idea of how they're treated, right? Sometimes it's overcautious and we don't allow them to do things. It sounds like you're asked to just show up, do things. Were people treating you differently? So I think within my family, it was very much show up and do things. My parents didn't know any better, right? Like there weren't other kids around my age where I was living for them to talk to their parents. They didn't really have those kind of resources. I think they did maybe like for phone calls and stuff, but this was like way back before the internet. Like I was born in the 80s. So like... (laughs) You're born last century. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) 80 what? When's your birthday? What year? 83. Oh, you're okay. You're right. You're right with us. Lowell's 81 and I'm 82. So we're geriatric millennials. (laughs) I like it. (laughs) So where I noticed the difference was when I got into school, that was when it was people were like, be careful. Oh, well, she can't do that. Oh, well, maybe don't give her scissors or like, I'm like, what? I use scissors at home all the time. (laughs) (laughs) And the biggest frustration for me, which is a pretty big part of my narrative is that I would go to gym class. And most of the time I wasn't involved in gym with like what everybody else was doing. I got to pick a friend and we would go off like on the stage or like somewhere where we were quote unquote safe. And we could like play for an hour and do whatever we wanted to do. And like, 
maybe for some kids that would have been really fun but I was like but I want to do what everybody else is doing like Mm -hmm. I want to play dodgeball I want to play basketball and I just don't think people knew what to do with me I had some teachers who after me harassing them long enough they let me play dodgeball and I just ran around attached to another person which made us a bigger moving target but that's okay (laughs) (laughs) and I tried to get involved in sport where I could there was one mom actually who was very big in our cross-country running scene and cross-country skiing scene in the city and she got me to run I don't even know what it was. It might've been 2K or 3K or something like that. And I was like nine or 10. And that was my introduction to running. Mm. And I was like, no, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) So I don't like swimming and I don't like running. All right. And then she becomes a triathlete. So there were some people I think who were really trying, but I felt very excluded from mainstream sport within the school system. I tried to be on the baseball team and I was like, I can do that. Like, cause I played t-ball with my cousins and, or even just baseball. Someone would throw the ball and tell me what to swing. It wasn't fabulous, but like you're 10 anyway. So good for you. <laughs> um, That's so awesome. And the school wanted me to wear a helmet. And I'm like, is anyone else wearing a helmet? And they're like, no. And I was like, then I'm not doing this. Cause like I already stick out like a sore thumb. Thank you very much. Aw. Well, everyone should have yeah. been wearing helmets. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they do now, right? Don't they? Soft- I don't know. Softball players. Do they? I have maybe, no idea. maybe just That's when they question. bat. Maybe. I, I can picture helmets, but maybe it's just on the batters. That goes to show how much we know about baseball and <laughs> softball. That's not what we're here to talk about. So. Right. <laughs> it's so wild to me that your background is a fear of deep water and exclusion in school sports, and yet you became not only an athlete, but a Paralympic athlete. How did that happen? <laughs> That's a good question. Sometimes I ask myself that. You must have just a crazy Uh, inner drive. Yeah, that's part of it for sure. As part of that like inner drive thing, my mom's side of the family is Portuguese. My dad's side of the family is Finnish. And in Finland, they have a word and it's Sisu. It's S-I-S-U. In the Finnish culture, that word means like it's an essence of someone and it's this inner drive, hardcore kind of out there. And when I was really little, my grandpa used to call me that all the time. And I was like, no, I'm not. Uh, I'm like, oh, maybe a little. (laughs) Grandpa knew. You've now channeled it. Yeah. Uh (laughs) I guess so. I had to go somewhere. (laughs) Uh, Wanting to get into sport and also being concerned that I was in grade six and everyone else was getting homework and I wasn't. And I knew that I wanted to go to university. I don't even know how I heard about it, but somehow I heard that there was a school for the blind down in Southern Ontario. And I was like, I need to go there because I need to play sports and I need to have homework. When you were in grade <laughs> so, six, this was your thought process? Yeah. Oh, wow. This, this, it was like towards the end of grade six, we're sitting having dinner. And I said to my parents, I'm like, um, so in September, I want to go to W Ross. Okay. <laughs> like, well, it's kind of late for next year. I'm like, no, I need to go next year. I don't know how it happened, but I went in September. <laughs> Wow. I was there for grade seven, eight, and nine. And again, kind of halfway through grade nine, I was like, okay, it's time for me to leave because it's a very small school. You're on a tiny campus. You're not really in the community. It was really good for me. I'm glad I went. But I also knew that it was going to be a huge culture shock when I left. And I was like, I don't want to go straight into university having not been immersed in mainstream society for a really long time because I was like, that's going to be really hard to deal with. Wow. Do you ever have a lot of foresight for your age? My goodness. 
See, this is why I'm like, who was this person? <laughs> you. She was you. It still is. <laughs> so grade seven, eight, and nine, I went there. I played every single sport that I possibly could get involved in. There were some sports that you were required to do, kind of like as an after-school activity. And it was to try and improve physical literacy within young people who have visual disabilities. And cross-country running was one of them, which we already know that I don't like doing, but <laughs> it was more fun because I had friends. Oh yeah. And swimming was a part of the curriculum. So they have a 25-yard pool, I believe, on the campus. And you had to go to swim lessons twice a week as part of your gym class. So I went and this was me still afraid of deep water and I had to learn how to swim. And within about two months of having swim lessons, one of the instructors who also was one of the swim coaches was like, you should join swim team. I'm like, you're funny. (laughs) (laughs) I can barely swim. And they worked on me for a while and swim club started in November. And so by the time November rolled around, I was like, all right, I'll try. And that was where swimming started for me. And then when I left, I was like, well, I don't want to stop doing this. This is a sport that I can actually do that doesn't require a whole lot of adaptation, really. Uh When I went back home, I stayed in swimming and continued on from there. That's where the athlete started. (laughs) Wow. And did the confidence in swimming help your confidence entering deep water like oceans and lakes? If you were comfortable with your ability to swim, did it make it less scary? Yeah. Oh yeah. I was much more comfortable. I didn't need a life jacket anymore. I could swim around. It was fine. It definitely helped for sure. (laughs) Wow. I love how you're just writing your own story at such a young age. You're like, mom and dad, I'm going to need this now. Please take me here. And I'm like, no, this is done. Let's move on to the next thing. (laughs) My poor parents. They're probably very grateful. You very much helped raise yourself. (laughs) (laughs) So let's bring the trifecta together. When was your first time on a bicycle? At some point, I don't know when, we got a tandem, my parents did, and it's one of those big, what I like to call now, comfy couch types. (laughs) A cruiser? (laughs) They're like, yeah, super heavy, the seats are really wide, the handlebars stick out way far on the sides. (laughs) And I used to ride that around with my dad, and then started riding that around with some of my friends, but I wasn't really into biking. Like I was like, hmm, this is neat and wasn't super excited about it. But now the funny thing is in triathlon, the bike is my favorite part. (laughs) I don't know, like I could have taken it or left it, you know, like I wasn't afraid of it. Like I was afraid of the water and I didn't hate it the way I hated running. It was just (laughs) kind of the middle of the road. (laughs) Wow. I'm assuming that you grew to at least tolerate running. (laughs) As it is a third of a triathlon. Do you know how long that took? It's probably taken about until last year. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) There was one point, I think it was last year. I looked at my coach and I'm like, I think I'm a runner now. (laughs) It took so long to get there. But going back to the bike, after I moved away from home from university, I didn't get back on a bike. I didn't get back on one until I decided that triathlon was something I wanted to do. And that was like 2016. Wow. Now that I'm saying all this out loud, I'm like, I have no idea how I got here. (laughs) One day at a time, hey? (laughs) These are good questions, everyone. (laughs) It's it's funny that we don't really see the path ahead of us, especially 
those of us who can't see, but <laughs> this idea of the future is not this path that we're supposed to find. We just step out in faith and, and live it. And when we look back, we can see how all these paths kind of came together into the story of our life. Yeah, it's pretty neat. It's very neat. Yeah, that's crazy. So <laughs> so you competed in swimming from 2000 to 2008? Yes. And so were you at three Paralympic Games? Yes. Oh, okay. Wow. Which one yeah. is your favorite? It's a toss-up between Sydney and Athens. Mm. I mean, Sydney was amazing because it was my first one. And you got a silver medal at that one, right? I did, yeah. Woohoo! That might have a little something to do with it being might your favorite. have something to do with it. <laughs> yeah. We had really big crowds, too, in Sydney. Like, the, the oh, stands yeah. were full for swimming, which was pretty incredible. Well, that's right. I remember Stephanie Dixon told us about that because swimming is, like, a big deal in it's Australia, huge. right? Yeah, oh, that, that like would be awesome. Yeah, it's hockey to us. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> There's, like, a <laughs> swimming pool on every three corner. <laughs> like, oh, wow. That's cool. And then Athens was just neat because the culture is so different. And obviously, like, we're separate from the country, obviously, because we're in this village that mm. has international food, so you don't have to eat Greek food every day. But the culture is still there. It was very, very neat. Jealous. That sounds fun. Mm. <laughs> it was fun. And then after, oh, sorry, Lola, you were going to say something? No, I don't want to jump ahead so to see what your well, story is, but I, I was, was just asking about Tokyo. What? What, uh, I, oh yeah, okay. Like. English. I was just gonna do the time in between, but okay. yeah. let's let's do the time in between, <laughs> okay. and then we'll we'll get the latest of the Paralympic Games. So after two thousand eight, then that's when you kind of retired from sport at the time. <laughs> yes, at the time. Um, <laughs> yeah, I retired after Beijing. I always knew that I was going to retire after Beijing. I was finishing university. My first guide dog retired around that time. Retiring from swimming wasn't based on those things, but I just sort of felt like I was moving into a new chapter of my life. And I had come out of university with an undergrad in sociology and like, I loved the topic, but it had been like super heavy. And so I wasn't really sure what I was going to do with that as a career path. So I actually enrolled in massage therapy and I went to school for massage therapy to become a massage therapist. And I thought, well, this is my way of, you know, I can stay involved with sport, but I can be helpful and I don't have to be the one in the spotlight. Mm -hmm. It's a very hands-on job. <laughs> <laughs> it was a really cool job, but I also knew probably about a year and I'm like, this is not what I want to do for the rest of my life. <laughs> <laughs> and when I stepped away from swimming, it's no secret that like I was pretty unhappy with swimming. There was a lot of political stuff going on and I was frustrated. And when I walked out of that building after my last race in Beijing, it took me three years to go back to a pool. Oh, wow. Because I was that angry with swimming and let me tell you that is not a good way to leave a sport no. mm -mm. I took a lot of time away and I didn't do anything that would be considered organized physical activity I walked a lot and did massage <laughs> mm. but really that's all I did and then I don't know like 2012-ish maybe it was the bug of the games like you know it was the first one I hadn't gone to in a long time and, and <laughs> yeah since I had started going yeah the buzz around London was huge it was yeah. kind of the modern era of Paralympics started there, it seems yes, like. Yes, it was huge. And I was living in Scotland at the time. Oh, so wow. the air was just vibrating. I was like, you know what? Maybe I wasn't done. Maybe I was just in the wrong space and the wrong environment. And when I was training for Beijing, we had a 50 meter pool at my university and there were people in and I was like, what, like, what are you doing? Like, I don't know. You just talk to people, right? And they're like, oh, we're training for a triathlon. I'm like, what's that? 
And so like this seed about triathlon had been planted in like 2008 and kind of around 2012, 2013, I started thinking like, is that something I can actually do? And so I was like, you need to learn how to run first. (laughs) It's pretty so, crucial. It might, it might come in handy. You got to learn to run with jelly legs too. Yeah. <laughs> yes, that. I didn't know that at the time. I, <laughs> I had no idea what I was getting myself into. I didn't know anything about wetsuits. Oh boy. <laughs> Nothing. And so 2015, I think it was. Yeah, I bought a treadmill and signed up for a half marathon and was like, you are going to learn how to run. Oh, wow. <laughs> so I did two half marathons that year and a marathon. And I say <sighs> I did the marathon loosely because I like ran, walked the whole thing, but I finished it. Yeah. Wow. Then I was like, okay, well, at least I know I can get through running. <laughs> <laughs> you may not love it, but you're capable. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I love how you just casually dropped in the conversation that you lived in Scotland. What were you doing there? <laughs> and how long were you there? I was there for two years, I think it was. I had gotten married in 2010. I don't know. All these things like blend together. I feel like I've lived nine lives. <laughs> I feel like you have too. <laughs> and we lived in the States and we were living in South Carolina and I wasn't doing well in South Carolina. So I was like, we need to move. And two of my best friends at the time were living in Scotland, getting their master's degrees in archaeology. And my friend joking around was like, well, you should move here. And I'm like, haha, that's funny. And then I was talking to my mom and my mom's like, well, you can because you can get your Portuguese citizenship. And I was like, okay. (laughs) So (laughs) that's what I did. And we moved to Scotland for two years. No big deal. Your husband too? (laughs) Obviously, yeah. I guess. And yeah, and he uh, he didn't like it so much. I loved it. Oh. <laughs> I just don't think it was meant to be for us. You know, we yeah. were very two different people. <laughs> Tell us about your husband. How did you guys meet? Well, he is my unhusband now. Uh- <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> okay, never mind. We don't have to go down that track. Well, this is... It, She's it sounds laughing. Like, well, so. well, I was like, no, no, we need to. Oh, Jessica, you're amazing. It's Period. hard to take off the psychologist hat too, because I'm like, well, there's a story there, but this idea that yeah, you weren't meant to be. Like, you weren't happy there. He wasn't happy there, and yeah, it's now an unhusband. I so like that's... that as opposed to an ex-husband. <laughs> yeah, he's unhusband. <laughs> I never laugh when somebody says that they're not married anymore. <laughs> Jessica, what are you doing to me? Okay, tell the story. <laughs> well. Actually, he has a fascinating story, to be honest. He randomly lost his sight at 25 to some very rare, weird autoimmune disorder. So we met at guide dog school when I was getting my second dog. We dated, we got engaged, we got married, and then we tried to meld our two lives together that were very different. And to be fair to him, he was trying to figure out how to live as a blind man like mm-hmm. that's very know? different to lose your sight once you've had it for 25 years yes hey? and like like and just newly acquired perspective, like yeah, yeah he bought a car like six months before he lost his sight uh. you know like a brand new car and so I emphasize with what he was going through I also didn't really know how to support him because I'm like dude just get on the bus <laughs> like yeah that's what we do and so we moved around a lot I don't regret those experiences. 
I learned a lot and I got to live in Scotland. How can Mm -hmm. you regret that? (laughs) And I think at the end of the day, it was just like, we cared about each other, but we just, we just didn't fit, you know? And sometimes that happens. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes we touch base every once in a while and make sure the other person's still okay. And then Mm. carry on. Through that experience, what did you learn about yourself and about love? Well, I learned that I was a terrible communicator. And if I wanted to have another successful relationship, I needed to get better at that. (laughs) Well, you guys were at a bit of a disadvantage having both of you blind and especially him newly acquired. Like I know what life is like in a relationship with one visually impaired person, but I'd be very interested in a relationship where both are. No nonverbals. Yeah. And then towards the end of our relationship, his sight came back. Oh, excuse me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So like that's, that was the other part of the story that it makes his story phenomenal is that it wasn't supposed to come back. So like every year that he lived as a blind person, his vision was not supposed to return. Like the, the chances of it coming back decreased. It was already like this teeny tiny chance that it would come back. And when we were living in Scotland, his sight came back which is actually how I know that my visual memories are not accurate because his sight came back seven years later. And he's like, this car looks way bigger than I remember. <laughs> like, <laughs> his, his like depth oh. perception had changed. And I remember one time we were walking and I'm like, there's a door in front of you. There's a door. There's a door. There's a door. <laughs> like he walked right into it. When he had sight and you did not? Yes. <laughs> I could hear his feet echoing off the building. I'm like, you're getting closer. That's too close. Oh. You should stop now. <laughs> But his depth perception was completely gone. It looked like the glass door was like four feet away from him. (laughs) Oh, wow. That's like following the GPS if it's taking you right into the lake. You know, that scene from The Office where the GPS says it's to keep going. It's like, no, you're going to the lake. I think my treadmill has that photo up all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Always running towards the lake I can't get to. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Oh, my goodness. So just out of curiosity, is he, other than depth perception being off, Is he fully sighted now? Yep. Back to driving. We bought a used car together. He got his license back. (laughs) How did that change your relationship when at first you guys were both blind and then all of a sudden one of you wasn't? Like, did that impact your relationship? I think it did. I had been in relationships before with men who had had sight. So like I was really trying not to rely on the fact that he could see Mm. And that might have also contributed because I think I was trying to be too independent as well. Because like at some point in a relationship, you support each other and you work as a team and an entity. And I was too busy trying to not, I don't even know what the right word is. Yeah, not depend. Burden him, I guess, Mm. or depend on him. And even despite my best efforts, sometimes he felt like I was, right? So his perception was, you know, we only do things together when I drive you places. I'm like, well, you only want to do things when we drive places. (laughs) (sighs) We were just very different people, you know? So I think it definitely played a role, but probably not in the way that most people think. When did he become unhusband then? Mid-2015. Okay, so that's when you... I sort of started embracing my athlete side. 
kind of mm-hmm. like January of 2015 and I didn't want to live a sedentary life anymore and mm-hmm. I wanted to eat healthier again. I guess I also learned that these lifestyle things that don't seem to be a big deal actually are a big deal. And so mm. if you want to be fit and healthy, it's a lot easier when you surround yourself with people who want the same thing and try, instead of trying to motivate someone else to do it as well. Just be around those people. Wow. So then that transitions nicely into your diving into triathlon. The comeback story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's interesting. It's actually the same time. So 2015 is the year I did my first para triathlon. So we were starting the same time. I did the 2015 ITU nationals in Edmonton. How did you like it? His smile the whole entire time was from one ear all the way to the other one. So yeah, I, I don't it. know if I smile when I do triathlons. <laughs> Everyone told me I look really relaxed. I'm like, well, I'm not. <laughs> yeah. Lol looks like very happy all the time. <laughs> so we start around the same time. You make your way all the way to Tokyo. So what has that journey into triathlon, swim, bike, run with a guide? What has that been like? And what has that taught you? Oh, I feel like you just asked me five different questions. Um... <laughs> kind of did. <laughs> <laughs> First of all, it is one of the most challenging things I have ever done. It's really tricky balancing three sports, fueling for three sports, resting for three sports. Yeah. And also not losing the human side of you too. I think that's been the biggest challenge for me. So 2016, I sort of got more involved in triathlon and actually what a triathlon would look like. And I did a couple of them. I guess my first one, Lowell, was like you. It was actually nationals. It was in Ottawa. And I hadn't done any open water swimming yet. (laughs) So like three weeks before this race, I finally find a way to be able to do open water swimming. And it's terrifying. (laughs) (laughs) Like, Like, it's one thing to get in the lake and like, you know, float around, tread water, do somersaults. I don't know. But like, to put a wetsuit on and have to swim a certain amount of distance, like I would go 50 meters and pop back up and have a panic attack. I'm like, I can't do this. Oh. <laughs> How am I going to do this? How am I going to swim 750 meters? <laughs> and so with the help of some very patient people, we managed to get me to stop breaststroking. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> because I liked that better. They're like, you got to swim freestyle. <laughs> I'm like, but I can breathe more with breaststroke. <laughs> You could also probably <laughs> breathe more just walking <laughs> yeah, I think in the so. water. <laughs> yeah, well, when we first started, we were in shallow water and I kept standing up. They're like, stop doing that. I'm like, I can't. <laughs> <laughs> we heard that when we did, we did long ago, uh, the triathlons in Edmonton at Horlock. Oh, is that, where, is that where you did it? That's where you did it. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was like the year after we were there. That was smelly and gross. Yeah, no, that was not, not an <laughs> ideal environment. Anyways, we've done it there before. And we heard that one year, uh, George LaRock, a former NHL player, he did that triathlon and he is such a big guy and apparently doesn't swim. And he walked the whole thing, <laughs> the whole swim. It's a pretty shallow pond. So you can <laughs> anyway, so you can walk it. Anyways, back to your story. I can. <laughs> That's what I should have done. Um, (laughs) With the patience and guidance of many people in those three weeks, we managed to get me to the point where I could at least swim 750 meters without stopping. And you're tethered (laughs) to someone at this point, right? Did that not make you feel better about it? No. (laughs) 
<laughs> you didn't let them just pull you? <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't want them tied to me at all. Like, this is worse. It's kind of weird, eh? <laughs> yeah, it's strange. Because when you're tied to someone and like you're rolling to breathe or like whatever, you're like pulling on them or like bumping into them. Elbows and, and we heads. didn't know how to make a tether. So we made our, my first swim tether <laughs> with a bunch of bike tubes tied together. <laughs> <laughs> nice. There's got to be a better way, right? What did you use at first, Lowell? Yeah, we used a really light nylon rope that connected us, so it worked really yeah, well. Yeah, see, you're, you're thinking there, Lowell. I, um, Probably lots of creative methods. <laughs> <laughs> we did nationals that year, and the head coach of the Paris squad happened to be there. And I had been in, in touch with her earlier and been like, this is me, this is what I want to do, what do you think? And so she had kind of gotten me in touch with a coach and was like, start here. I'll see you in June. I was like, oh dear. Okay. <laughs> and then at the end of 2016, they had a talent identification camp in Victoria and I was lucky enough to be invited. So I came out and I'm still not sure what she saw because I still couldn't run 5k without stopping, especially after doing a swim bike part. In yeah. front of it. <laughs> no kidding. So yeah, I don't know. But before I left, I sat down with her and we had a really frank conversation. And I said, I'm an older athlete this is fun. I love it. But do you think this is something I should pursue recreationally or competitively? Because I don't want to waste your time, my time, your money, my money, like triathlons is not a cheap sport. Oh, no. yeah. And she's like, no, I think you should consider doing this competitively. And we would like you to move to Victoria. I was like, I just moved to Ottawa. I am not moving to Victoria. No. <laughs> so I went back to Ottawa and continued Biking and running on treadmill and bike trainer because it's the middle of winter in Ottawa and that's what you do. Yeah. And we went to what I would consider probably my first triathlon race. It was my first para race, really. It just seemed more official, I guess. Mm -hmm. I had done three the season before, but they were just kind of like fumbling through trying to figure out what I was actually doing. Mm -hmm. And it was in Sarasota, Florida. And I don't really remember it. I remember having a lot of fun though. And like, there were other athletes starting out too. So I think that helped. Like I watched the stuff that they were doing and experiencing and was like, yeah, this is something I want to do. And again, we came back to that conversation at the end of the weekend where she was like, okay, you don't have to move out to Victoria now, but if you make it to Tokyo, we're going to need you to move out at the you know beginning of 2020. And I was like, well, that doesn't make sense because as a you know, person who can't see, it takes me like nine months to learn how to get around. <laughs> I was like, mm. I'm going to be too busy learning to get around or relying on people to get to where I need to go to instead of actually putting my energy and, and efforts into training. So July of 2017, I was in Victoria. <laughs> wow. Got to get there early. <laughs> yeah, Give yourself a couple extra years. Little window. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, nine months, that's the same time frame it takes to uh, prepare for a baby. So <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Makes sense. You're brave. So how did you get connected to specific pilots then? So when I was in Ottawa, the coach that I was working with, he had connections to different athletes and stuff. And I worked with them and I am forever grateful to them because without them doing the beginning stuff with me, I would definitely not be here. They got the person who like, I would run holding onto someone's arm. Like I was terrified of running, not touching someone. Mm. They got very, very beginner athletes. <laughs> so 
I really appreciate them. And, and they're also the crew that helped me get comfortable in open water. There was one guy who lived in Ottawa at the time. He would pick me up when he was done work and we would drive out to the lake probably once or twice a week. And we did that all the way into October because aside from the run, open water was the thing that I was struggling with the most. And I think because I came from swimming, I was very shocked. Mm. I thought that part was going to be easy. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. when it wasn't easy, I was like, oh no. <laughs> yeah. The only part that was familiar to you became unfamiliar. Yeah. And terrifying. Yeah. Oh. Once I got out here, then I had the connections of the athletes who were out here through my coach and others reached out to running clubs and stuff. And that's how I got started out here. So I like lessons and this idea of what we can learn from other people. What have you learned from your guides? Oh, man, a lot (laughs) from each and every one of them. Patience and being able to accept that someone else is being patient for you, (laughs) if that makes Mm. sense. Yeah. Accepting that support. It's kind of humbling. It was very challenging coming from an individual sport into what I consider and most paratriathletes consider a team sport just being a part of that team like and working that closely with someone is really challenging being professional but also going to a place of vulnerability that usually is not a part of a professional relationship it's a very strange balancing act and it's hard to get it right (laughs) and it takes time and it takes effort like sometimes that rapport doesn't come organically and so we have to work at it and that's okay also being in the moment with someone i'm very good at like future big plans (laughs) which i'm sure you've noticed from this conversation (laughs) but i wasn't very good at being in the moment and my guides and triathlon have both taught me the importance of that and the value in that it's great like i have it in other parts of my life now too which is Mm. pretty amazing sorry one of my dogs is chiming in on the conversation (laughs) is that a guide dog no that is a cavalier king charles spaniel named hermione who (laughs) rules the house (laughs) (laughs) and then do you have another dog i have randy who is my working guide dog she's a shepherd cross of some sort she's a rescue Uh and currently i have a black lab named shadow that i was training for scent detection but he is not interested in sniffing So he is currently going to work with me to a mental health and addictions treatment center. And he is doing some pretty cool work there with our patients. Oh, did he get his degree in social work at the same time that you did? (laughs) No, he's a baby. He's only 16 months. And he's a rescue as well. I think he's getting his degree now (laughs) 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 With, with the patients. Everyone knows he's been training. But they love having him there. The school of experience. (laughs) He's an intern. (laughs) Yeah, he's an intern. Exactly, Lil. For as young as he is, he's done some pretty incredible stuff. He's very intuitive. Like he'll know when a patient needs him. And usually he's like Mr. Wiggles and bouncing all over the place because he's a 16-month-old Labrador. Um, But (laughs) when someone needs him, it's like a switch. It blows my mind. He just like lays down beside them or gets on their lap. He's pretty impressive. How do yeah. the three dogs get along with each other? They have such different roles. Yeah. Um, B and Shadow are best friends. Aww. Brandy beats him up all the time. So that's good. 
<laughs> no, they're awesome. They're so fun together. They're great. Aww. And do you have plans to collect any more rescue interns? <laughs> um, I have plans of collecting. Yes. Yes. The short answer is yes. <laughs> In a couple of weeks, actually, I have, she's not a rescue. There's a golden retriever coming from the States. This has been a plan for over a year. She is trained by a company called Scent Evidence Canine. And he is retired FBI. He worked in special victims Whoa. and canine unit. Mm, and cool. he saw that there was a gap in the way that the dogs are being trained to find people. And so he sort of rejigged that protocol and the handler training. I'm into dogs. I'm probably really annoying about it, actually. <laughs> Not at all to us. And yes, I noticed you were into dogs. <laughs> I love them. Um, <laughs> we do too. And, uh, my poor mother. Um, and so <laughs> when I got Brandy, because she's so busy. Okay, I have to back up. Guys, I have so many stories. I'm really sorry. I'm no, I'm noticing and, and very much enjoying. <laughs> yes, carry on. <laughs> she was 11 months old when I got her. And it was during COVID. And I really needed a guide dog because my Nala was retiring. And I am completely blind. Plus, I also have hearing loss. And so for me, oh. I really don't feel comfortable crossing streets without guide dogs. I can do it. I just don't yeah. like it. And so getting a guide dog from one of the bigger schools was a problem because of COVID. And so I had heard of this smaller Vancouver-based organization called Leash of Hope Assistance Dogs. And I got a hold of them and I was like, do you happen to have a dog who wants to guide people? And they're like, well, we might. And anyway, a couple months passed and I got matched with Brandy, but she was only 11 months old. But having some dog training experience and her being my fourth dog, they took a huge leap of faith <laughs> and let me take her home early and finish her guide training, which was in and of itself incredible and a whole nother novel. Yeah. <laughs> in that experience, I learned that like, I really do love training dogs and it's something that I want to get into. And I got her into nose work in the house to keep her busy because she needs her brain to work. And while I was doing that, I started researching things, blah, 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 realized that like scent detection is something that I would love to do with dogs or like, you know, dogs who find humans, like that sounds really cool to me. And mm. so I emailed a bunch of places and was very upfront, like, I can't see, this is what I want to do. And I had varying responses. But Paul from Scent Evidence Canine was like super excited and he was like, let's do this. And so my very long story is probably longer, but he, <laughs> he trained <laughs> Lucy, Golden Retriever, to do scent trailing. And he did some of her training under blindfold so that he could understand kind of what I would experience oh, as much wow. as he can, because we know that doing those things is different. Yeah. It's been a long time coming, but she's coming in two weeks. So that's my wow. long answer to your oh, question. Oh, I can't wait yeah. for an update. <laughs> oh, that is so cool. So now you're in the world of dog training. See, I already thought you were cool before I even knew all this stuff about dogs. you. Oh, dogs. We love dogs. We have a big old St. Bernard. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> and in that story, there's many parts to it, but you're also doing work in mental health and addiction. What hat do you wear there? Somewhere in my nine lives, I went and got my master's in social work. At the time, I did a lot of volunteering. I also, I mean, I volunteered all through high school and university, but when I got into my master's of social work, I got back into volunteering. And one of the things that I got to do, which was so cool, was 
Leader Dogs for the Blind does puppy raising programs in prisons. And I got to go into one of those programs and work with the inmates and the puppies for about a year, once a month. And it was incredible. But being there made me really realize there was more for me to do in helping humans. And at that time, I was sort of rethinking, you know, do I want to get back into sport or not? And I was like, well, massage is helping humans. But I was like, there's more to helping people than what I'm doing now. It took some time to find the right job for me, I guess, or the right environment. But where I am now, it's called Homewoods Ravensview. And I am so excited to be there. It's just part-time because I'm still training for Commonwealth Games. But I do one-on-one sessions with patients where we can do things like goal planning or discharge planning. Or Mm. sometimes we just go outside and play fetch with the dogs Mm. because that's what people need. And it actually goes back to that being in the moment thing that Mm. I wasn't very good at. Being able to do that has really helped me in working at Ravensview because I can now more clearly identify when someone needs to just be in the moment and I'm like, put the pen and paper down, let's go outside. Mm -hmm. And so I put a proposal in before Christmas about starting an animal assisted therapy program there. So then that's what Shadow is. He's part of a trial. So that's like my big job. I also run a goal setting group for our younger patients. So they would be considered young adults from 18 to 24, 25 ish, Mm -hmm. and also have gotten into some training in the future. I think we're going to look at having me there more and being more involved in in other groups like grief and loss groups and that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And I just finished my DBT training, which I love. Nice. Dialectical behavior therapy for all of those who don't know what DBT is. (laughs) It does not sound like you have had nine past lives. It sounds like you are currently living nine lives. (laughs) Maybe a little bit. (laughs) Wow, that's so amazing. I love all that dog stuff. It's great. I think, too, revisiting that sort of balance piece being able to go to Ravensview and work there and work with people and then also be able to go and do my triathlon stuff, I think has really helped me as an athlete in that before, and I sort of touched on this earlier, but I don't think I was very clear. I was very much like just doing triathlon. And like, as much as that's great, I didn't feel fulfilled. I felt very selfish and kind of just taking, taking, taking. And as an elite athlete, you sort of have to in some ways, but now I feel much more fulfilled and balanced and healthier. And it's making me be able to go back to training and be really passionate and excited Mm. about it too. Mm. I can't believe that we're like at the end of our time and we haven't even talked about Tokyo, (laughs) the last Paralympics. So, you know, summarize Tokyo for us, please. (laughs) Okay, go. (laughs) Tokyo was as good as they could have made it considering the circumstances. Mm. We knew it was going to be different going in. For me, it was a little strange because it was games four, plus I was going in as a different sport. It was very different. And but I will say the Japanese volunteers and everyone who was there, they were so excited to have us and we felt very welcomed. And despite all the strange protocols of spitting in a tube every morning to get COVID tested and checking your temperature every time you walked into a building. And then they had these like sprinkler hand sanitizing stations. (laughs) It was, you put your hands under it and like, it's like this yeah, I don't like know. Mist there was a more? lot of hand sanitizer. I don't know. There was a lot coming out of <laughs> Like <there>. showers, <laughs> sanitized yeah. showers. I'm like, that's my whole arm, but okay. <laughs> um, and like 
from a sport perspective, I've described it as this before, and this is not anything against Japan because I think they did the best that they absolutely could. But it was like you bit into something that you thought was going to be chocolate cake and it was stale bread. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and it's just because like we didn't have spectators. Mm-hmm. You couldn't have them. Your family couldn't be there. It was hot, right? Super hot. It was very hot. Oh my goodness. Yes, very hot. Yeah, that was gross. Yeah. Um, did you, you managed okay though? You didn't pass out? The, no, no. We did a lot of heat training before we left, which is smart. I felt prepared. Good. When the experience of meeting other athletes in other countries and like interacting with them, that just wasn't there. You couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. Going to a games, this sounds really silly, but one of the things is like you trade pins. And like, yeah. I'm not a very big pin trader, but not seeing that happening and like the atmosphere around it, because people would get like so excited. Mm. You kind of miss that stuff. When we ate in the dining hall, you were sitting with your own team. So like, we couldn't even sit with other members of Team Canada. We had to sit with our own team. Good thing we liked each other. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and you're separated by plastic partitions. So you're eating your own little booth while you're sitting with your teammates it was just mm-hmm. very 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 different and so that like games experience that you look forward to or heard about it just wasn't there mm. again not to anyone's fault mm-hmm. they really did try and the volunteers were so welcoming and embracing and you know anytime one of the athletes won a medal like the volunteers had a raucous explosion of joy mm. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, which was amazing. And that was so good, but it was very different for mm-hmm. sure. Wow. So will you be looking to Paris 2024? I don't know. I've committed to Commonwealth Games for sure this year. By then you'll probably have become like a celebrity hairstylist mm-hmm. and a dolphin trainer. I, <laughs> <laughs> I did use scissors, you know. <laughs> you have you were trained very early with scissors. Okay. <laughs> so Commonwealth Games this July, Birmingham in the UK. Back to the UK for you. Back to the UK for me. Yep. And some of my friends live around there. So hopefully we're allowed spectators. <laughs> yeah. Well, at the I very least, love local to ones. see them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Well, this is where I need to step in because it sounds like you're questioning the next steps. So you've already done swimming. You've done triathlon mm-hmm. or doing triathlon. Bobsled. Mm-hmm. Well, just kidding. Well, I think, yes. I think... <laughs> now we're talking. Yeah, bobsled would be fine. Actually, I'm, I'm, I'm done with that one Sorry, too. Lola, you carry on. Um, winter. That's a winter sport. For for your next summer sport, though, how about you come and join me on the in the tandem team? Cycling Canada, one sport, easier to balance your life, your favorite and your strongest, anyways. You, so. you better not let Carolyn hear you say that because <laughs> rowing has already tried to convince me to move over. I'm too small. I am a great triathlete because I'm sort of good at all three of those things. (laughs) (laughs) No, small is small is good for it. You got to go all the hilly races then, because it's the small people that are great at all the hills. (laughs) How tall are you? Five five. Isn't that about the size of the cyclists? Lowell's big for a cyclist. He's six two. You are very tall, man. Yeah, so that's hard for the hills. So that's how come I'm like, oh, the smaller. Yeah, that's a that's what he always wants on those hills. We gotta chop you off at the knees, Lowell. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'll take the height. Anyways, that there's there's my plug. I love triathlon, and I will do uh, I'll do an Ironman before I'm done my career. I'm putting that out there, but. At this stage for competitive elite, I wanted to do something big and I switched over from paratriathlon because it wasn't going to be for men's 
triathlon wasn't going to be in Rio, but then yeah, realizing it's a lot easier to train for one sport and <laughs> yeah, still and not easy though. No, but it's a lot easier cycling. And then it definitely was my strongest sport. And I'm a bit better at the longer distances. So in para triathlon, for those who don't know, it's the sprint distances. And I was always better at the going longer. So then maybe you will be good at Ironman. I don't think I'll ever do an Ironman. That is way too much running for me. No, 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 no. <laughs> uh, one thing as a visually impaired person that we like to check into is just fear. What's your relationship with fear? It exists for me, for sure. I'm a human. So, I mean, you've heard me say a million times already in the last hour that I was terrified. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I'm not kidding. Like I was actually afraid of open water swimming, like mm -hmm. the wetsuit things touching me that I couldn't identify. Because mm -hmm. when you're swimming with your eyes, which are your hands, you shouldn't stop to see what's there. Otherwise, you're not going forward anymore. <laughs> Fear definitely exists for me. Obviously, I take calculated risks. One of those is for me being independent. I work with a guide dog because I feel safer working mm -hmm. with a guide dog. But then with her, I guess I feel braver because mm -hmm. we do a lot of really ridiculous things. Mm. I'm more willing to embrace fear when I feel backed up. And so maybe that's why mm -hmm. paratriathlon works for me, right? It's a team sport. We yeah. back each other up. And working with my guide dog, I feel backed up. So mm. fear definitely exists, but you just find a way to navigate it that works for you mm -hmm. because letting it hold you back or letting it stop you for me anyway, that leads to a very boring life. And I like to live a lot of them. So. <laughs> so I hear, right, this natural thing of being a human and having fear, but being brave and having courage to overcome that fear. One mm -hmm. of the comments I heard was a statement that it's like giving a presentation on stage and fear is wetting your pants, but courage is to go up and give the presentation with those wet pants. Yep, exactly. <laughs> See, you said what I said, only much more eloquently and in less words. <laughs> Good job. Love it. You. you are amazing. We yes. are really thrilled to have had this chance to talk to you and it would be great to meet you at some point as well. I think I broke my yes. quota of the number of times I said, wow, but no other words would come. And every time I said it, I annoyed myself a little bit, but <laughs> that's it. Just wow. That just sums you up. Well, thank you so much, Jessica. This has been an absolute delight and we could cancel all our plans for the whole rest of the day and keep chatting, but we, we shall respect the time. <laughs> thank you to both of you so much. This was a lot of fun. So fun. Well, have a great day, Jessica, and give all your doggies a little snuggle for us. <laughs> well, for sure. Thank you. Okay. okay. <laughs> all right. Bye, Jessica. Bye. Bye-bye. <laughs> all right, Jessica. That was a very fun conversation. Oh man, she is just, she is wild. That's the first conversation we've had that we didn't actually see the person because the Zoom camera wasn't working on her end. But And she didn't see us either. And she didn't see us either. That's true. But it was just the most delightful conversation. Mm -hmm. Wow. Her personality, just without even seeing her, just, oh, just radiates. Disability of not being able to see can impact connection. And for many people who have been raised fully blind, they've kind of been raised in fear and raised in kind of make your life smaller, live in that bubble. But Jessica does not fit that profile. She is expansive and connecting and giving and serving. And it is really inspirational to see that she's going deep into sport, but also she's giving back. She's wanting to expand her life with the animals, with these dogs, but also in working with people who are overcoming their obstacles in mental health and addiction. 
was thinking of how lucky she was to have such supportive parents, but also how lucky her parents were to have such a spitfire who kind of knew what she wanted and needed at such a young age and really just helped raise herself. But they were supportive of that. It just sounds like just the perfect combination. Yeah. I'd love to be a fly on the wall in her life, <laughs> especially when she makes these decisions about like, oh, I need to go here and do this now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's this idea of agency within oneself to have personal agency of wanting to do something to explore. And that's a big piece around this internal locus of control or external locus of control. Are you going to have the externals in your life hold you back? Other people's thoughts, opinions, the environment, whether your disability or not, or are you going to then make change and agency in your life? And so she is a woman of strong agency, a strong locus of her own control. And with that, you can tell she has joy, she has meaning, she has purpose, and she continues to find those things and seek them out. And then she has the patience to bring them to fruition. And she probably has like a gazillion friends because she's so fun. Yeah. A lot of lessons for all of us to incorporate into our life of finding something to be passionate about and then seeking it out and and making it happen. Yeah, she's pretty cool. Don't want her paratriathlon coach to hear, but maybe we'll try to bring her over to the cycling side. Or the rowing friend, (laughs) I was going to ask. Or the rowing. That's fun. I'd actually, that would be another summer sport I would do. Lol, I don't think there's a lot that you wouldn't do. Yeah, rowing. And and Jessica too, both of you. (laughs) If I'm being honest, you guys would probably try just about anything. Well, there's a lot of things to try. Let's just think about this for one second, Lol. What's something you would not do? I know, rhythmic gymnastics. No, probably wouldn't do rhythmic gymnastics. (laughs) That's the only one. I have the rhythm of a fluorescent light bulb. <laughs> yeah, but that's uh, fluorescent light bulbs still have a rhythm. That's true. I have I have a rhythm. <laughs> I have a rhythm. Feel the rhythm. Feel the ride. Get on up. It's bobsleigh time. Cool runnings. Yeah, we just watched that. Uh, since our last podcast, we had the amazing Taylor Austin on for bobsleigh. And then we watched Cool Runnings with our boys, as we said we would do, and, and brought Cool Runnings to the next generation. So that was awesome. Now I have uh, Cool Runnings in my head. Are you yeah. dead, man? Yeah, man. I wish we would have watched Cool Runnings before our conversation with Taylor, though. But anyways, that's okay. Yeah, can't go back. <laughs> All right. Well, everybody, thank you for joining another great podcast. Well, I don't know if the podcast was great, but the yeah. guest was amazing. <laughs> Yeah, who cares about us? But we do pick amazing people. I do have to say that about us. So that was a lot of fun. And we look forward to bringing many more great conversations with amazing people through the rest of this year. Yeah, thanks again, Jessica. And we look forward to following your journey. Until next time. Hey, love you guys. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.